Sophie Turner decidedly already over ex-husband Joe Jonas flaunted her new romance with British aristocrat. I didn't know anybody was still an aristocrat. Actual first name Peregrine Perry in quotes. I mean, if John you're not an aristocrat Dick- with that name, then I mean, you don't have very many career options if your first name is Peregrine, like the Falcon. Welcome to another edition of the I Just Want This Done Divorce podcast. As always, your host, Rayford Palmer and Rahul Iyer coming at you from our home studios, the office, and we've got another great episode for you lined up. And by the way, thank you for subscribing. The way to keep things going for us is to subscribe, like, give us those reviews. That's how we know that you're liking it. And give us feedback, comments, email to us, whatever, so that we know that we're delivering a product that you want. So this is not for just our uh, entertainment. We have fun doing it, but you know, we want to do this for you. So let us know. We love the feedback. We're getting more subscribers on YouTube. We're getting more subscribers on Apple Podcasts, and the stats are going up. And we thank you all for that. We're glad you're interested in the show. It's very rewarding for us. When we started out, we didn't quite know what people would like, and we're figuring it out. So thank you. And uh, today's show, we're going to talk about a lot of good things. Our, our usual, we like to touch on celebrity divorce stuff. We like to tell you some real divorce information based on our knowledge of the law and tell you about kind of how that relates to you. We want to talk about some relationship information, and we're going to talk about some stuff about dissipation of assets. We're talking about covenant marriage and some other things. So Tinder, we always like our dating app stuff. So that's it. So without further ado, I was just about to tell Rahul a story about my trip to the Bulls game this week or this past week (laughs) with David Hochberg. WGN Radio, we're going to be on the radio coming up with Hochberg on his show on Saturday. So the thing I was just saying was that when you're in one of those boxes and David has one of those nice box seat things, you were mentioning they have that dessert cart, right? (laughs) Yeah, right about the, uh, what is it, the end of the third quarter, if it's a basketball game, they'll come by, knock on the sweet door and say, you know, you have a giant card of desserts. It's very fancy. And if you haven't done it up on these upper level boxes, they have these little rooms that have box seats and they have like food served there and there's a little fridge with beer and pop and then they bring back this dessert card. Well, I'm kind of a softie for like sugar and stuff. So this card comes by and I'm looking at it and I'm overwhelmed because there's so much stuff on this thing that I want all of it. There's like cheesecake, there's ice cream, there's chocolate chip. There's like that rainbow cake, right? (laughs) Yeah, it was out of control. So I'm looking at this thing and my wife's not there to stop me. She's in the room watching the game and I'm out in the hallway and I see a giant bag of M&Ms and I love M&Ms. I'm trying to scan the thing for something just better than that because it seems too pedestrian to be ordering a bag of M&Ms when you're at this special game and somebody else is buying, by the way. And I'm looking at this great thing. And I, I want the chocolate chip cookie dough, which they're literally scooping into like a plate for somebody else. But my brain was like saying M&Ms. So out of my mouth just goes, m and Before I knew what happened, my mouth said M&Ms and the lady handed me a bag of M&Ms. Before I could say, no, actually... I- want the cookie dough. So I feel like an idiot. I can't give it back. So I walk into the box and I feel stupid because I got M&Ms and I didn't want them. So I was like a five-year-old kid who didn't know what to do. I was like paralyzed with excitement. And then my animal brain said M&Ms even though I wanted cookie dough. So that's my story. I'm sticking to it. All the desserts the world could have offered you on that cart, you know, Godiva chocolates, you know, cheesecake, all kinds of things. And you got a bag of M&Ms, huh? Yeah, and no knock on Eminem Mars people. Wonderful. I'm a big fan. But then I go inside, and David, who's generous at hosting us at this thing, he says, Hey, you know, that's a $16 bag of Eminem's. <laughs> I felt really stupid. I, didn't, I felt like paying them back for it. And it's not that big of a bag. It's probably $4 worth of Eminem's, you know, retail. But that's uh, there you go. Anyway, that's my Eminem story from the Bulls game. Anyway, thanks to David Hochberg for inviting us out. It was fun and met some nice people. Okay, now on to our regularly scheduled program. So we've been talking about Sophie Turner, Joe Jonas, and how they had a temporary custody arrangement. It's kind of an international visitation issue because I think Rahul talked about this, that she's from England, he's American, and he's always touring and stuff. So there was an issue and then they reached some kind of temporary settlement. So they haven't finalized their case yet. And this article came out on shefinds.com, all the links and show notes as always. And it says, well, that was fast. Sophie Turner is decidedly already over ex-husband Joe Jonas as she flaunted her new romance. By the way, we are flaunting our new audio equipment. Listen to how the dulcet tones of Rahul Iyer. Maybe we'll just have an ASMR episode one of these days. (laughs) Right. I mean, it's amazing. 
We both are enamored <laughs> with how good we sound, so we hope you guys like it out there because uh, we, we think we sound fabulous. So we hope you like it. So, But now, Sophie Turner decidedly, already over ex-husband Joe Jonas, flaunted her new romance with British aristocrat. I didn't know anybody was still an aristocrat. Actual first name, Peregrine, Harry, in quotes. I mean, if John you're not an aristocrat did, with that name, then, I mean, you don't have very many career options if your first name is Peregrine, like the Falcon. John Dickinson Pearson. So rich, he's got four names, ladies and gentlemen. In Paris last weekend, the pair were seen kissing on a street corner. How romantic. By the way, this is me quoting the story directly. Just a few months after both of them split from their significant others, Sophie Turner and Joe Jonas made quite the ruckus in September with their divorce and subsequent custody battle, which we talked about. They've agreed to settle in private. So this is the eyewitness report. Over the weekend, Sophie Turner was spotted on a street corner with Perry Pearson. Apparently, that's kind of his street name. Heir to the fourth Viscount Cowdray, a county in Sussex. For those of you keeping track with the home game, according to an eyewitness, the pair were seen, quote, chatting and laughing a lot. You know, God forbid. As they walked along the street, Sophie kept it low-key in an all-black outfit paired with a bright red baseball cap, while Pearson sported jeans, a black peacoat, and a tan scarf. Can you sport jeans, a peacoat, and a scarf? Does that rate sporting as the term? You know, I don't know if you, if you sport that. That's more of a casual, I'm not playing sport? sports look. Don't you sport a tuxedo or like, it has to be something like out of the ordinary to sport it. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, exactly. Or you think of it from the athletic point of view, you say you're sporting it because you've got running shoes on and you're about to be sporting. (laughs) You're commencing sporting behaviors. All right. The gentleman also removed his gray cap before grabbing Sophie by her coat and pulling her in for a kiss. Oh, Perry. Oh, Hmm. just could not resist. Very very alpha of you. Yeah. After the kiss, they parted ways. The eagle-eyed fan reports. Though they left in separate cars, the lovebirds were spotted again later that day. Okay, blah, blah, blah. All right, nobody needs to hear the rest of it, but we just want to give you the hot scoop on Sophie's comings and goings, I guess, in Paris and and the update on that case. Not done yet. Hopefully, they're going to settle. They haven't reached a final settlement in this case. He's reportedly worth $270 bucks. The aristocrat who seemingly won Sophie's heart is the eldest son of Michael Orlando Wheatman Pearson, also rich enough to have four names. And this guy's worth 270 million bucks. Pearson is newly single, recently split from last long-term girlfriend in July. So- I wonder if aristocrat is the same as royalty, or is there a difference? I don't know. I'll look it up while you talk about the three lessons from... Yeah, so just as a segue from that here, found an article on Psychology Today, not by the famous Bruce Lee, but rather one of his colleagues, apparently. What three lessons can we learn from this, what they call a divorce fiasco? And I think what you mentioned highlights one of the biggest differences between the pair. According to this article, it says, according to TMZ, that they had huge differences in lifestyle because Sophie Turner had an inclination towards socialization and Jonas had a preference for a quieter home life. So I was wondering if Joe Jonas has been spotted with any other people in sort of the ilk that Sophie Turner has, you know, on the street and anything like that. So, yeah, I don't see anything about Joe doing stuff. The article says essentially that nobody's going to ever find out, as is with most divorces. Nobody really finds out the true reasons why some people split or or move apart. There are three big lessons, I guess, that they're saying this divorce narrative appears that appears in the media and that is good for people to think about is number one, you have to reflect on your capacity to value divergent perspectives. Are you compatible? And do you have goals, values, and daily routines in alignment? Right. What are your aspirations and how will you support each other? Open communication and and are you willing to compromise to bridge lifestyle? So that's one. And we've talked about those importance of having those value alignments and and then discussing them and that they change, being all aware of that. Absolutely. I mean, otherwise, you're just looking for trouble here. I mean, number two, you have to restrict personal matters to the private domain. So it says you already as a celebrity have a lot of media scrutiny. You don't want to give the media more fodders. You have to have clear boundaries and maintain a private sacred space for your relationship. And even if you're not a celebrity, this is applicable, right? I mean, don't put stuff on social media. Don't just be living on Instagram, Facebook, Snapchat and the like, you know, have some private time, private information that's not in any sort of public domain, and then have the pre-parenthood talk. According to a report by Wyon, W-I-O-N News, Joe Jonas said he found himself shouldering the majority of the child-rearing responsibilities, and that was not something he expected initially, which again is interesting because not to make any comments about gender mores and, and the like, it just sounds like something they'd never talked about. Who will do what? She was out traveling, filming, and he had his world tour. I was going to say, did, did the kids go with him on 
tour or something? I'm not aware of what the facts were on that. I know a couple shows ago, I think we talked about some of the details. They were. They were all over the place. And I know Sophie said, bring them back to the UK. He's like, no, they're on tour with me. They're where they belong in the United States. And so it's kind of who knows. But that talk has to be there, right? So who will do what role, what task, who's going to be managing daily routines, going to a doctor's appointments, overseeing school activities, childcare responsibilities, and how those things are paramount. So even when we draft our allocation judgments, we have these provisions in there, which might, you know, at first class seem like, why are we putting all this in here? But I think it makes sense because you have to know who's doing what. Otherwise, either everybody will do everything, which too many cooks in the kitchen, or nobody will do anything. So, and then activities get left undone. Right. And translation for folks, uh, allocation judgment is our term in Illinois for a custody or visitation agreement and judgment. Judgment. So, and one thing that comes to my mind talking about that is no custody judgment is perfect and they can't be computer programs, meaning there's no way we could write one or anyone could write one that accounts for every single possibility. I think people, there's a desire for people to stuff a million things into those agreements and there's no way to write the perfect agreement. And you just have to be flexible and understand that circumstances will change. So the agreements are, you know, at most guidelines. They have the force of a court order, but you can't write one document that's going to be perfect for all circumstances from ages two to 18. Right. And these are always evolving too. I mean, as needs change, people change, kids change. Along the lines of that, there's an article I came across that's about how not to get divorced. And it's, we like talking about these divorce stats things just because they're interesting. And this one is from uh, UK style Yahoo. Experts reveal the perfect age to tie the knot to avoid the chance of divorce. What is that, pray tell? They talk about in England, 42% of British marriages end in divorce, according to recent stats. And they did some research and pulled apart the numbers and found out the folks that get married between 28 and 32, that's like the bracket between people or between ages that have the highest chance of a successful marriage. And it said for folks that their marriages do end in divorce, the average time of being married is ding, 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 eight years. Like we talked about a few episodes ago, I think we entitled that Always one, seven itch. And it was right on the money. And this different study confirms the information from the other research. It says uh, meeting couples who marry in 2023 may be in the verge of splitting by 2031. So they say it's a two-year increase from pre-pandemic figures. And the researcher suspects some people decided to delay divorces due to the lockdown. These stats came in 18 months after the no-fault divorce option was introduced in the UK. In April last year, I don't think people realize, and I didn't realize, that no-fault is very new in the United Kingdom. And it has led to a 20% increase in the number of divorce filings, according to data from the government. And trending age of marriage is trending up in the UK. It's now 31. In 1970, the average age was 23. This is a similar trend in the United States as well. And now they in the UK, 80% of couples live together before marriage. A number was That number was as low as 33% in 1980 for the UK. So I just thought that was kind of interesting. That, that is interesting. And it seems like you know, that this might be the British episode, but it's very similar to the United States. And I feel like over time, over the next decade, I'm sure those numbers will sort of level with where American American levels are at as far as these numbers, now that they have similar sort of causes for action or grounds. And we've talked about the, the general trend for age of people getting married is going up and marriages are the rate of divorce is dropping. We've talked before about how it's not clear that the dropping in divorce rates is necessarily more people staying married. I guess they are, but the total number of marriages is down. And we were speculating, and you mentioned the fact that we're not tracking people that are unmarried but living together. And so it may be that people break up just as much as they always did, only they're just not getting married. So those numbers aren't even on the radar anymore. So it'll be interesting to see what the marriage rate is and if that's dropped. And so we're the divorce lawyers that hope you stay married. We're pro-marriage folks here. And so we try to find some bits and pieces in our shows to talk about ways to stay together in your relationship. And we talk about dating and things like that and relationship information because it's interesting. And we also want to help people with those questions, too. So let's go to the next thing. And this is uh, along those lines. Stallone and Jennifer Flavin halt divorce proceedings and reconcile. This happened a little while ago. But um, the title of this article from Palm Beach Post is Hollywood Happy Endings. Sylvester Stallone and Jennifer Flavin halt divorce proceedings. And apparently they decided to reconcile, and uh, the case was filed in September. In October, they've dismissed the case and say they are reconciling. So Stallone's 76, Flavin's 54, married in 97, so quite a while ago, 26 years ago or so, married in London, 
three kids, 25, 24, and 20. In December 2020, they bought a lakefront estate in Palm Beach, paying $35.3 million through a trust company. It was initially pretty contentious. As we recall, we talked in a previous episode about how there were accusations flying about how Stallone was controlling Flavin and not allowing her access to money, and Flavin sent her daughter over to the bank to try to withdraw like half a million dollars, right? Is that right? I think I remember that. Yeah, yeah. Was that Stallone's daughter? Well, No, was it Flavin's? Oh, I'm confusing... I'm sorry, I'm confusing the Hulk and Ferrigno with Stallone. I think so, So yeah. This, sorry to mix up my macho guys from the 80s, but (laughs) yeah, so anyway, they've reconciled. They say they have worked out their differences and both extremely happy. So I know we talked about the Flavin-Stallone thing briefly in one of the other shows. And in her petition for dissolution of marriage, Flavin accused Stallone of wasting marital assets, which he denied. What is interesting, and we wanted to talk about dissipation of marital assets so we could explain what that means and how it works, especially in Illinois, which is, of course, our perspective and our background because we're Illinois divorce attorneys working in Chicagoland. So, uh, Rahul, why don't we talk first about what is dissipation of assets so we can get into nuts and bolts about how Illinois does it. And first, I'll just footnote by saying your mileage will definitely vary from state to state. So consult with an experienced divorce attorney in your jurisdiction to get the scoop on how your state deals with dissipation or waste of marital assets because they're all different. That's what I was going to say first and foremost is we call it dissipation in Illinois, dissipation of the marital estate. Different states might call it different things. So don't just presume, hey, there's no such thing as dissipation in my state. So I guess it's not there. It might be called something else. So, but it's all fundamentally, we're talking about Illinois, but I'm sure we haven't looked, but I'm sure every state has something similar. Dissipation of marital assets is essentially a concept where you're using, you meaning one party to the marriage, is using marital assets for a non-marital purpose. Now, we've defined what marital assets are in previous episodes, just really quickly, anything in Illinois. So this is all again, definitionally for Illinois. So in your state or jurisdiction may have a different definition. But in Illinois, marital assets are anything that you acquire during the marriage, including income, regardless of whose name is on title to that asset. Now, there are exceptions to this. You know, I'm not going to go ahead and bore everybody with all the different exceptions. But fundamentally, that's generally what a marital asset is. Then if one party uses a marital asset, which belongs to both parties for a non-marital purpose, then that is considered dissipation. So what is a non-marital purpose, you may say? Well, a non-marital purpose typically is how I like to casually refer to it to clients, parties, in casual conversation, sex, drugs, and rock and roll, right? You're having an affair, you're engaging in some adultery, you're spending it on another person instead of your spouse or in your family for a non-marital purpose, then that is, you know, definitionally dissipation. If you are using or abusing drugs, alcohol in excess, then that is considered dissipation because it's, again, it's not helping the marital household. You might have some sort of an addiction that needs help, that needs treatment. Again, mm-hmm. non-marital purpose. And then, or if you're out partying, going gambling in casinos, you gamble money away, money that should have been for the family you spend, and now you are in debt, being irresponsible. That would right. be the third big category for it. Classic example is you spend family money on the vacation to the Bahamas with the girlfriend, definite dissipation, buy jewelry for the girlfriend or boyfriend. That's dissipation of assets. I had an interesting case where the family always did tithing. They gave 10% to a church. And after the marriage broke down, after they split up, my client kept tithing, but jacked up the tithing dramatically, like way more than the traditional previous level of donation. And the court decided that the overage, the excess was was dissipation. The baseline was okay because it had always happened and the spouse had notice, but the excess was dissipation of assets. Things, one footnote I would say to the alcohol and that kind of thing is small time stuff. You have a hard time getting judges excited about. So a guy going to nice dinner where you don't know who the person went with, it might've been a family friend or something. Good luck getting 200 bucks counted as dissipation or they buy really nice clothes and maybe that was something they didn't have in their budget before and they go buy a whole new wardrobe. You might have trouble with that. A lot of this is a matter of scope and or sort of scale compared to the size of the marital estate and Mm -hmm. the incomes. And just because a family lived frugally, 
it might have been that one spouse was tight with a buck and the other one wasn't. And now that they're getting separated, the spender starts spending. The court's attitude might be, well, they have a right to do that. It's not a big deal. And, and I've seen that before at trials where, you know, my client might be the one who doesn't like spending and they freak out because the spouse starts buying a bunch of things and they say, well, that's dissipation. And the court just doesn't get that hyped up about it. So courts no. don't like dissipation. They generally don't like these claims unless it's something really obvious and big or sizable and worth pursuing. So yeah, dissipation is a tricky thing and courts don't love the revisionist history part of it where people tend to start digging back in the past and raising things that they were okay with before that they're not okay with now that they're getting divorced. Right. He was always sending money to his family, but I never agreed with it. Oh, what are you talking yeah. about? We agreed that we'd send so-and-so this much money every month to help them out. You were totally on right. board. No, I never agreed. I, I said I didn't agree, but I was trying to be nice. <laughs> yep. And the court's mindset with those kinds of things is if you have notice about it or you knew or should have known is kind of the mindset, the court's attitude is, well, your remedy is getting divorced. I mean, your, your remedy is always you can leave the person if you don't like it. By staying married, you're basically consenting to whatever's going on financially unless it's being concealed. Can you explain the timing issue and the irretrievable breakdown issue? And then I wanna, I've got a comment on the timing that comes because I'm an older guy. I was sort of involved in the legislation drafting in Illinois. Sure, yes. I don't have it in front of me, so I'm going purely off memory here. No dissipation, I believe, you know, the law says that no dissipation can occur until you have proven the date of the irretrievable breakdown and then it's happening. What is it? Is it thereafter or is it before the irretrievable breakdown? It has to be after the irretrievable After, right? Breakdown. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. And it can't be more than five years ago and it can't be more than three years after you knew about it. Yeah, uh, the import. timing is critical. Exactly right. So when the court is dividing property or allocating property, each party, they take into account the dissipation. And for those of you following along at home, this is under 750 ILCS 5 slash 503. If you want to get into your law nerd stuff, this is part of the Illinois laws. When you get to division of property, the court can take into account the dissipation of assets. So dissipation is subject to the following conditions. A notice of intent to claim dissipation has to be given 60 days before trial or 30 days after discovery closes. This is during the divorce case. The notice has to contain the date or period of time during which the marriage began undergoing an irretrievable breakdown. So that's a usually an area of dispute. So mm -hmm. when did the marriage start falling apart? Identification of the property dissipated. So what was wasted and a date or period of time during which the dissipation occurred. And here's the timing that Rahul is talking about. No dissipation shall be deemed to have occurred before three years after the party claiming it knew or should have known of the dissipation. So you can't let all this time pass and then go back and say, oh, it's dissipation. So you have three years. If it happened on X date, you have three years after that to do something about it. In no event, five years prior before the filing of a petition for dissolution of marriage. So it's a five-year absolute cutoff and a three-year cutoff from knowledge. So there's an attempt to prevent people getting super historical and going back, you know, 10, 15 years trying to say, oh, this is dissipation. That's dissipation because evidence spoils and people's memories fade. So this is an attempt to put a lid on that. So, and you're not trying to account for your entire marriage, right? You're not accounting for your whole marriage here. Exactly. So what I guess we should go back real quick to first principles, and that is, well, what, what is this and what happens? So if you prove dissipation, what do you get? If you prove dissipation, all you get is, let's assume 50-50 division of a marital estate, you get half. So your spouse theoretically was entitled to spend half the money because they're going to get half of the assets. Mm -hmm. They basically have to pay half back to you. Theoretically, they're reimbursing the marriage for the full amount, and then each person's taking 50%. But the net effect is they're giving you 50%. Right. So it's sort of like I can go and gamble away $100,000 of, of marital money. Conceptually, right. that belongs to both of us. So I can do whatever I want with my 50000 but I can't do whatever I want with your 50000 yep. I have to give you back your 50000 The interesting story on this, when this statute came into play, they there was a desire to create time limits in the legislature, and I was on a committee developing the new statute or the, the amendment to the law related to this. And my argument was for a two-year look back because that's the tort statute of limitations. So when you steal money from somebody, aside from the criminal side, if you convert, which conversion is the tort of 
taking someone's stealing. property. Yes. For those of you not in law school, we'll give you the two-second law school description. So stealing or destroying somebody's property is called conversion. And the statute of limitations for conversion in our state is two years. My argument was, well, this is just conversion. So make it a two-year statute. Well, somehow the powers that be, I was a young lad at the time, decided it should be longer than that and not two years. And uh, I thought two years from the date it occurred or knew or should have known. So if they concealed it, allow it to be two years after that. I didn't win out on that argument. So it's three, three to five max. And that's how it works. So we just wanted to kind of explain that because it's, it's interesting and it's an issue that's often raised in divorce cases. In most cases, it's not that we talk clients out of it, but usually when you tally it up, a lot of dissipation isn't worth the game in terms of the money spent chasing it down, proving it. And then once the client realizes I'm only getting half back, even if I win, and it's going to cost me X dollars to prove all this stuff. And then arguing about the time window and you find out one person says the breakdown was at X date, the other person says it was some other date, it becomes a battle. And then the latest date it can be, by the way, is the date that the divorce is filed. That's right. the absolute marriage breakdown bottom line. So have you tried any cases with dissipation that you can remember that are like noteworthy? I, w- I don't know if it's noteworthy, but definitely one of my very early on trials was a huge dissipation case where my client was alleged to have dissipated about $175,000 and it was inaccurate, but the problem with this whole thing was that they spend everything in cash. So you, you take out money for the month, and then you go in and you pay all your bills with cash. You go to the grocery store, you pay cash, you do everything in cash. So then sure. over the course of time, they even paid their mortgages and stuff in cash. They would take the money to the bank and go <laughs> hand it to them. So, and it's what they've done for years. It was yeah. one of those where all you do is you look at a bank statement and all you see are withdrawals. It's like, where did the money go? Well, then you have to piece it together. Once someone files a notice, you know, the burden shifts. So you have to now prove the dissipation did not happen. So right. they don't have to any longer say, they can just say, hey, you've dissipated assets. So now we have to show we didn't. So the whole exercise was essentially piecing together a lifestyle and, and essentially oh, showing wow. it's like, how are you paying for all these things? You know, is everything else just free that this person has? That's not yeah. dissipation. So ended up starting trial, going through some testimony over a couple of days, ended up settling it. It was one of those where the judge could kind of smell what's, what's happening. They kind of pull you aside after a while and say, hey, you know what, what do you guys think about doing this? Just to cut to the chase and save these folks some money. And that gets to into the live by the sword, die by the sword thing, right? When people live all in cash and then one side says, hey, wait, they did X, Y, and Z. And, and then the judge is sort of looking at them like, you guys live loosey-goosey financially for all these years and you're going to kind of die by the sword. Like the court's probably thinking there's some kind of tax game being played, although that's right. not the court's ballpark. The court's not going to report anybody to the IRS. But the court's sort of thinking, nah, it's a little bit of a shyster move to be doing that. And it's sort of, as the kids say, it's sus. Yeah, <laughs> it's sus, right? Or Learned sus that word recently. Yeah. yeah. Right. And so there, you know, when you've got a situation like that, even if, if you represent the aggrieved spouse, so to speak, and even if they're legitimately the one who's kind of been taken advantage of, it's hard to prove well, cert- certainly there's evidence problems that you're pointing out with cash. How do you track it all down? But then the court's kind of shrugging their shoulders like, nah, you guys played fast and loose with the rules for 15, 20 years. I'm not really crying uh, right. crocodile tears for you. And then I've had a similar issue was a client came to me one time and said, my husband, we always kept 100 grand of cash in the safe and it's gone. <laughs> Well, what are you going to do? She gave me a picture of an empty safe. And I, she's like, well, I've got photographic proof. I got a photograph. You can show that to the court. I said, yeah, but it's, it's all based on you saying there's a hundred grand in the safe. You're just showing me an empty safe. That was oh. one. And another client where she found out the husband was cheating and the guy squirreled away cash at the condo that they owned in, in downtown Chicago. They had a house in the Burbs and he, they had a condo in the city and he squirreled away like five grand in cash in the condo. She found the cash and she took photos of the cash on the bed all laid out. It looked like some kind of thing out of Miami Vice for those of you who've been around a while. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about. And then guess what? She went back later and the money was gone. So in this case, I had a bunch of pictures of cash and her word that they had the money and that it was gone and that he took it. So Not that she walked out with it, right? Or that it was just something she got somewhere else or that it was fake money or, you know, any number right. of things. So that, that went nowhere, too. So it's, it's, it becomes a major evidentiary problem 
when you're dealing with cash and proving it becomes really challenging. I was going to say, I found more likely than not, oftentimes people just bring it up as as a way to assert some leverage over a situation. They'll say, hey, we're not going to file about dissipation. We're going to have to fight about dissipation. Let's just agree to something. And guess what? No one worries about dissipation because you know they can file it. You might have some sus transactions and (laughs) you're not going to have to spend fees fighting about it. So instead of spending five to $10,000 just getting all this stuff put together, just give the other spouse or the quote unquote aggrieved spouse an extra 10K to just kind of walk away or 7K or whatever the case might be, right? Whatever they might be asking for. It's a cost benefit analysis ultimately. Yeah, always cost benefit. And many times the dissipation is lower than what it's going to cost to fight about it. I've had extreme cases like you did. I had a guy who was into online porn and escorts and strip clubs, the whole nine yards. And it was a big number. It was all, it was credit cards and it was a giant number, kind of like what you're talking. 100 grand, 150 grand in, in like two years stretch. And my advice to that client was just front it because it was going to be figured out anyway. We laid it all out. We figured out the number. The guy was dead to rights. There was no, there's no way out of it. And so the best thing you can do then is not hide the ball. It's right. it's right there anyway. We fronted it. We laid out all the documentation and baked it into our settlement offer and just said, look, we want this to go away. We certainly don't want information about this in the public record. I wanted to preserve my client's reputation. And I'm happy to report his wife was okay with that too because the person had a business and stood to lose if the word got out about this. So the wife understood that it was in her best interest to keep this quiet as well. So that was wrapped up without incident. This is many years ago now too. But in those kinds of cases when privacy is critical, the client is a person whose name is valuable, their public persona is very important to protect. It is worth a lot of money to make those things go away very quietly and very quickly. And you don't want to incentivize the other spouse to want to cause a dust up or, you know, go to war on something. Right. Just about finding common ground is, you know, mutual destruction. So yeah, mutual assured destruction. Yeah, exactly. So you don't want that either. So I'll cut my nose to spike my face. You don't want to do that. So it's just, you're sure you're upset this happened, but look out for yourself. In turn, you're looking out for this other person as well. So Yeah, and we talked about that in context of like calling HR to report that your spouse is cheating with somebody on the job. That's going to get them fired. Do you, right. do you really want that and now you're not able to get support? People might say, well, that's their just desserts, but you're, you are cutting off your nose to spite your face. So those are things one should definitely not do impulsively. You know, absolutely. So let's uh, we're going to move on to the next subject, which you were going to talk about Hugh Jackman, because this is interesting, because we like talking about celeb divorces and things we can learn from them. And this is right in the wheelhouse. I found this article on Yahoo, and it's titled, Hugh Jackman allegedly wants estranged wife to sign ironclad NDA amid divorce to protect his secrets. And I I pause before these things, because ironclad and secrets are in quotations. So (laughs) these folks don't have, so Hugh Jackman, just his background, is married for 27 years to Miss Furness, F-U-R-N-E-S-S, first name, Deborah, Deborah, uh, D-E-B-O-R-R-A, Lee Furness. They've been married for 27 years and they do not have a prenuptial agreement. And he was like a young dude when they got married, right? I think before he was big. Yes. And then he became Wolverine. He's become, well, he became Hugh Jackman. They're now saying that Jackman wants Furness to sign the NDA to prevent her from discussing their relationship. He's also ready to give her a large part of his $100 million fortune if she agrees to it. They announced their separation publicly, and they said that they reached their decision to separate and get a divorce jointly. But he wants to keep her, allegedly, from talking about their time together in interviews, memoirs, and other possible outlets. And they say he's motivated by his desire for privacy because he's a very private individual. Again, we talked about that earlier, you know, with Joe Jonas, how he's very private. And he's wary of having any of his numerous secrets exploited by the media. Again, not sure what secrets. Obviously, if we knew about it, it wouldn't be a secret. So, And it's less about the financial aspect and more about retaining control over his narrative. Apparently, an insider told the National Enquirer. This is interesting that you brought this up because NDAs can be used in divorce cases. Just, you know, this isn't necessarily only the province of celebrities. It can be fine for 
everyday people may want these included in a settlement agreement, you can agree to things like preventing sharing of kids' photos or details of their lives without mutual consent. You can prohibit mentioning or tagging each other in social media, preventing disclosure of business dealings, finances, or financial details of the marriage or, or of the divorce, no posting on legal matters of any kind. So you can do some things with these NDAs. And then this sort of ties in with some famous celeb things like Steve Wynn. He did have a celeb divorce, but Wynn is the famous casino mogul and, you know, Wynn Resorts and he had uh, the Mirage and he's got this thing in Macau and all that. And Steve Wynn, there's been this tie-in with these things where these guys like have sexual harassment claims with employees and things like that and they settle with them and get NDAs signed and people have argued that those are unconscionable and that they can back out of them because they're like under duress when they sign them. There's been issues with that in the past. And I haven't heard of one in a divorce getting challenged like that. And normally you know of them in the province of celebrity divorces and also super high net worth, high income folks where they don't want their personal details splashed all over the media. So we've seen like the Bezos divorce from Bill Gates divorce, those things, the details are very private. You know, there's very little that gets put out in the public and that's all by design. It's all by design and it's not someone who rolls out of bed and decides, hey, I guess I'm going to keep all this a secret. You know, it's very meticulously planned and you need to have the proper legal jargon or legalese, essentially legal language to make sure it's quote unquote ironclad because not all documents and contracts are built the same. And you have to pay something for the privilege, which is why Jackman is probably splitting more of the estate is she would normally get 50-50 in a, let, let's just assume it's a 50-50 state. Let's pretend right. that would be an equitable, equitable division of their estate and there's no prenup. So normally she would get half. So if he wants an NDA, he has to pay for it. Got to give something of value that's going to motivate the other person to want to agree to these terms and consent to those things. So it's going to cost something. It may not cost an astronomical amount, if the person is getting support, they want to protect the source of the support. We we're just talking about having somebody get fired. And if we're damaging Jack, if let's assume this person's getting bossal support from Hugh Jackman for X amount of time. I don't know if that's true, but we want to make sure Hugh Jackman is a giant success going forward because we, <laughs> she would want to share in the proceeds down the road. So right. the last thing you want to do is see him fail or ruin his personal brand. So there's motivation there for the agreeing to an NDA as well. And so here's sort of the, the back end way of having something confidential when you don't have a prenup. You can still try and negotiate something through a contract. It's just an NDA and you don't have very much leverage here because she could very well say, no, I'm not signing an NDA and the judge won't make her sign an NDA. So it's strictly what it's a bargain for deal. If she gets what she wants, she'll sign off. And usually they have teeth in these agreements where if she spills the beans, she has to pay X amount of money and agree to an injunction and other, there's other remedies that are provided, like pay his attorney's fees. And you might call it a poison pill in the event that she blabs or violates the terms of the non-disclosure agreement. Pretty interesting. So next we're going to talk about Kim Kardashian, and she talked about the importance of prenups. And Rahul's got this good story he found. We always say, we've been saying this since, well, literally day one, about how important prenups are, prenuptial or premarital agreements are. BuzzFeed reports that Kim Kardashian stressed the importance of prenups by quoting Kanye West's Gold Digger song a year after they finalized their divorce following that messy two-year battle. Essentially, what happened is is that everybody, I think, knows that Kanye West, a famous musician and, and celebrity, and Kim Kardashian were married They have four children. They eventually got divorced, went from being amicable to extremely messy when she started dating Pete Davidson. That's when things sort of splintered. And then court documents that were obtained by multiple outlets revealed that the pair had a prenuptial agreement in place and they'd kept their assets and trust separate and they had settled things amicably. Recently, when this came up was that she was offering advice to her close friend and hairstylist, someone named Chris Appleton, ahead of his wedding. So she okay. said in, her, in an episode of her show, The Kardashians on Hulu, she made sure to stress the importance of getting a prenup to Chris Appleton before his marriage. She said, you have to get a prenup. I don't care what you have, who you are, what you do. She said, you need to get a prenup essentially. And then she quotes, of course, Fans know that line from his song, we want prenup, we want prenup. And so she, she says that to this guy 
Ye, as Kanye is known, raps about the importance of being financially cautious when it comes to marriage, with the next line being, it's something that you need to have because when she leave you, you know, blank, she gonna leave with half. <laughs> and so she quotes this to this guy and says, get a prenup. So again, you know, a little bit of uh, uh, fun there, poking fun. But ultimately, the principle is no matter what people say, prenups exist for a reason and they are extremely difficult if done right to break. People swear by them, you know, the most powerful, wealthy individuals get them because they work. That's absolutely right. Yep, they work. And I've said this before, I'll, I'll say it again. I was in a room full of very experienced, successful divorce lawyers several years ago where they're bemoaning the fact that they work so well. They wanted to change the legal standard to have them judged for how the marriage turned out financially, not for how things were disclosed at the time the prenups were signed, which of course would open up prenups to basically being blown up at left, right, and center. If you took some kind of fairness approach for how things ended up rather than what happened at the time they were signed. That's when you have a room full of successful divorce lawyers complaining that they that they can't blow up prenups, then you know they're working well. And like you said, these are like experienced, good attorneys. Yeah, these are people with 20, you know, 15, 20, 25 years plus experience who have been in the trenches for years bemoaning the fact that they can't defeat prenups, that despite their best efforts, they can't, even though XYZ unfair circumstances occurred later, that so-and-so ended up making zillions and they only have to give their spouse X. The prenup exists for a reason. And we have contracts that goes to our basic principle of contracts. Contracts exist for a reason and you can breach contracts, but there's a price to be paid for breaching the contract. People need to do their homework when they enter into contracts. And that's especially true with prenups. So know what you're getting into when you sign. And understand what your rights and responsibilities are, consult with an experienced divorce attorney who knows how they work, understand your potential downsides. It's, it's good advice to keep in mind. So now we're going to talk about the secret wedding trend among celebrities, and I'm not sure what's kicking this off, but found an article at Chris Evans, Julia Roberts, Dolph Lundgren among stars who had secret weddings, intentional intimacy. Chris Evans revealed last weekend that he and his wife, Alba Baptista, were married last month in two ceremonies on the East Coast, and in her native Portugal. Here's his brilliant quote, which is almost Shakespearean. Are you ready for this? I got married. It was really, really great. The Captain America <laughs> star said at the New York Comic Con on Saturday, they were wonderful and beautiful, the 42-year-old said of their nuptials. Planning a wedding, it's a lot, he added. Okay, so anyway, there's wow. more to that, but they didn't hire him in Captain America for his eloquence. Okay, ladies and gentlemen. He wasn't the writer. From he was the actor. Yes, correct. He didn't write the <laughs> script right. He was just reading the lines. Did a great job, but he's reading the lines and throwing that shield around. So then it turns out that Chris Evans, Dolph Lundgren, and Julia Roberts are among stars who said, I do, in a secret wedding. Evans and Baptista aren't the first couple to ditch a lavish Hollywood wedding in favor of a more intimate ceremony. Apparently, Dolph Lundgren married his fiancée, personal trainer, Emma Crocdal at a private ceremony in Greece. Must be nice. And so apparently they got married at their villa in Mykonos with a family and a few close friends. I was going to say, and for those who may not recognize the name Dolph Lundgren, I mean, I'm not sure who won't, yes. but he's the, the villain from one of my favorite movies, Rocky IV, the, the exactly. Russian guy. He played the Russian guy, exactly. He said, I must break you. And uh, to Rocky. And then has been in Expendables 1 through 14. Yeah. And as long as they keep making money, those guys are going to keep coming back. Uh, absolutely. It's, it's like the Rolling Stones. They just keep, as long as the cash keeps coming in, they're going to keep making these things. It ain't broke. Affleck and J-Lo famously got married at Affleck's estate in August 2022. They got married at the Little Wedding Chapel in Vegas. Coincidentally, my parents had their reaffirmation at their 25th anniversary at the little, I guess it was the little chapel of the West, which is not the little white wedding chapel. I think it's two different places. That's cool. Good for them. And they said this trend is that maybe the celebs are looking for something more private and less lavish and flashy that it's sort of jinxing the marriage by having these big public ceremonies. Jennifer Aniston and Justin Theroux managed to keep their 2015 wedding. This is kind of a funny story about how the secret wedding went too far. I didn't hear this story before, but this is good. They managed to keep their 2015 wedding in which Jimmy Kimmel officiated a secret by telling their guests it was a birthday party for the White House plumber's actor. So they apparently in the, in the invitations said it was a birthday party for Justin Theroux. But this is hilarious because they later called the birthday ruse a massive miscalculation because they ended up having a bunch of guests RSVP no because they just thought it was a guy's <laughs> birthday party, which is sort of a bummer for the dude. Like hey, we don't really care about your birthday. 
But then they had to go tell people that it was actually a wedding. And then a bunch of people said, oh, in that case, we'll come. So they have a quote from one of them. Oh, he told Vanity Fair, he said, afterwards, we realized it was a terrible plan. They basically had to reinvite them and tell them, no, actually, it, it's a wedding. And then these people came. But he, he tried to make it sound better by turning it around. I don't really understand his explanation. I think the burn was kind of on him that people didn't want to show up for his birthday. And then they found out, oh, it's his wedding with Jennifer Aniston. So... Yeah, I guess we have to show up. <laughs> it's like, wait, so it's his birthday and his wedding? He's getting married on his yeah. birthday? Yeah. <laughs> Just what? to, you know, mess with them a little bit. It's yeah. like, what? Wait, so, so wait, it's not you bring birthday. birthday gifts? Yeah. Do I have to bring two gifts now? <laughs> You'd think his friends would know when his birthday was, but right. I don't know. So then Julia Roberts got married a long time ago to Danny Motor. I've never heard of this guy. They used a similar tactic, and they invited people to celebrate Independence Day with the couple Sometime after midnight on July 4th, the around 60 guests gathered at the property as they exchanged vows. All right, this leads me on a sidetrack where I'm going to talk, I'm going to complain about people getting married on holidays. Yes. <laughs> okay. Don't do it, please. Free fireworks. Yes. Please avoid. So <laughs> we, you think you're doing us a favor. You think that we love it because we already have the day off. So it's wonderful that we can have a memorable time with you on your wedding because it's Labor Day or Memorial Day or the 4th of July. And we love celebrating the holiday with you. My cousin Megan is the one exception because I love her dearly. And the 4th of July is very special to her. So I make that one exception. Everybody else, don't do it, please. So she got married years ago, but it was a 4th of July wedding. The, the holiday wedding is great for you because you kill two birds with one stone. But now you've screwed up everybody else's plans for their <laughs> holiday for the weekend. weekend. They would have rather done whatever they normally do on that holiday with their friends and family. But now they have to come to your wedding on the 4th of July or whatever and screw up their vacation. So please don't do it, folks. It's very, we know it's hip and trendy, but uh, please avoid. So that's my... Well, usually you're like recharging action. yourself. You're on a boat. Yeah. You might be camping. You might be somewhere. You might just be hanging out in your backyard, but you're sort of recharging your batteries and you're like, all right, I'm going to work the next day. It's great. But now you're at a <laughs> wedding and now you're tired. You can't stay too right. late because it's a work day. So, yeah. you know, I mean, I'm sure we're you know, all exhausted. Jennifer Aniston's we, friends aren't going to work, but, you know, yeah. maybe, maybe not. But but yeah, we're all exhausted. Everyone's tired. Just come on. Like just <laughs> spare us. Do it on a regular yeah. weekend, because if you do it on a regular weekend, you're making our boring weekend fun. Now exactly. you're making a boring weekend in September exciting. Now you're making a June weekend. Nice. Cause we didn't have anything to do. So we're going to come. It, it's cool. We'll come to your wedding and it's awesome. We'll dress up and we like, everybody likes a party and free cake and all that stuff. But we already had something to do on the 4th of July. <laughs> you know, we didn't need another thing. Okay. I, but I'd be laboring the point. Okay. So anyway, this thing goes into this thing. Like this is a new trend and I don't know, put your com give us some comments. Do you think this trend is happening at IRL in, in regular people's lives or is it just celebrities? Are more people doing smaller weddings because they're getting so expensive? Um, I haven't been to any in quite a while. I'm, I'm a man of a certain age and nobody's inviting me. <laughs> I'm not sure why. Maybe because I'm a divorce lawyer and it's like the gray eminence. You know, they don't want to bring the grim reaper to the yeah. wedding or something. Exactly. By the way, we're a lot of fun at weddings. My wife, Julie, and I, we're, we're great guests. So if you want to invite us, please feel free. And, and Rahul's a lot of fun <laughs> with his wife. So don't let us bum you out. We won't talk about divorces. In fact, we'll have all kinds of tips to stay married, right? Like we do. Yeah. We're all about staying married and we're excited about folks getting married. So please do it. And no, it isn't a long-term marketing strategy. Like we've said yeah. before, we're not, <laughs> we're not trying to build an audience for us to handle divorces 20 years down the road. Okay, so let's move on to the next thing. We were going to talk about this interesting topic is covenant marriage, which has been in the press lately because of this new speaker, right? Right, exactly. So the new speaker of the house, Mike Johnson from Louisiana, is in this marriage called a covenant marriage, which was initially interesting for me. So I, I looked at this Business Insider article, and so I wanted to know what is... What is a covenant marriage? Apparently, under Louisiana law, couples can sign a document in which they agree to seek marital counseling before getting a divorce. And additionally, couples can only get divorced on a limited set of grounds, including adultery, if one partner commits a felony or faces imprisonment, or physical or sexual abuse. And so it's, it's not a no-fault divorce in which couples can just get divorced for, for really any reason. And a covenant marriage agreement may not be dissolved, rescinded, or otherwise terminated by mutual consent of the spouses. So you so, have to like prove fault. 
you have to prove fault and you're locked in and there's only certain fault you can prove. So we're back to the future. We're back to the future. And so Louisiana became the first state to pass a law to create covenant marriages in 1997. And then Arizona and Arkansas later followed suit. It's still very rare, apparently, with only 2% of Louisiana couples opting into it. Interesting. So I've heard there is a trend in the conservative trad marriage world. And I don't know if you're familiar with the term trad being like traditional. My my knowledge of the term trad came from actually climbing because I I climb. Shout out to wall climbers, rock climbers. Trad climbing is a form of like kind of old school or traditional climbing. And that term trad is sort of disseminated through other things. And trad marriage people are sort of promote the idea of sort of the traditional husband and wife relationship, stay at home mom, man works the job and, you know, sort of, again, like a back to the future mindset about child rearing and all that stuff. And there's a lot of proponents of that as sort of that we might have lost something and rushed to women at work and all that stuff. And it's, it's a very interesting thing to read about and an interesting trend. And, and this ties into covenant marriage because what you see in the trad marriage, let's say zeitgeist or the things that are published on social media and those circles are people complaining that divorce is too easy, that they need to, we need to go back to four cause divorce, that we need to go back to something like this covenant marriage, that this covenant marriage should be spread around. It should be harder to get divorced. It's just interesting that we went, we worked or in government, people worked very hard for decades to make divorce easier and less expensive. And now there's a trend to make it more difficult and in a lot of ways more expensive with well-intentioned people on both sides. And so we're, we're not here to, throw, to cast judgment on either side of this debate. We are big proponents of looking before you leap in divorce, that's for sure. Like think it through, get counseling, all that stuff before you jump. It's very interesting that this is in three states and I'm guessing that's three more than there were uh, several years ago. Absolutely. And, and, you know, I think one one reason why there might be so many proponents is, is that they feel like, hey, you know what, if I said I'm getting married forever, this is one way to assure that no one could just simply just say walk out of it. And secondly, it's to make sure people take marriage seriously. They, sure. you know, if you're going to get married to somebody, I feel like maybe people think, ah, people just roll out of bed this, this nowadays and just get married and say, all right, if it's not going to work out, I'll get divorced two months later. And they say, like you said, people are maybe a little, are not okay with that. And they feel like it should be taken more seriously like it used to be the trad way so that might be one reason for it obviously tons of reasons on both sides and we're not sort of picking or choosing either side of this this is sort of very interesting to comment about though yeah for sure okay and now we're going to go from talking about trad marriage and covenant marriage to how do you get somebody to marry in the first place we always love talking about dating apps right oh absolutely i mean it's always something new here with these things yeah, so what do you got? This one's this looks interesting. In Euronews.com, read an article that said Tinder now lets friends and family play a dating game and matchmaking process. The whole matchmaking sort of phenomenon that's happening around the world. You have a lot of Netflix shows describing various matchmaking processes. This says Tinder has rolled out a new feature enabling friends and family of swipers to <laughs> recommend potential matches. Interesting. So if you want family members, friends to sort of take the wheel. Is this now our excuse to our wives as to why we need Tinder? Because we're helping our our friends find yeah exactly there you go I, i'm not gonna try that excuse but yeah you know you're welcome to let me know how it works out though no i won't either i'm not i'm not interested in getting in trouble but i was like yeah yeah um yeah i'm using this because i'm trying to help my buddy find a girlfriend like, yeah oh, sure, that, and you're just the sitting ticket. there swiping i'm swiping for him here look it has got his name on it so apparently this dating apps matchmaker features or will allow users to grant others access to their accounts for 24 hours so they can suggest like instead of grabbing Jeez. your buddy's phone and saying, hey, let me see what you have going on here. Let's see what's cooking in the oven here for you. You yeah. can just have them give you access. And so you can say, OK, these ones are suitable for you. These ones are not. And again, oh how are you going to distinguish from him or her? I have no idea but because it doesn't change the actual matches that come in, I suspect. It's no, just, just letting it, you flag them. Yeah. So so if your buddy is one of those people, and I know many like this, will just swipe yes to everything because for them it's a numbers game. So there's nothing really I can offer. I might just have to weed out. Right. And women only choose 10% of profiles we talked about in a previous show. Exactly. So boys, play that numbers game. You've got to play a lot of cards to get the ace or the queen in this case, to use the analogy, because she's only picking 10% of you guys. Like uh, Michael Scott from The Office quotes Wayne Gretzky, right? He says, you miss 100% of the shots you don't take. And also quotes Michael Jordan. (laughs) (laughs) 
So Exactly. That's all we have for today's show, folks. That's the pod. We appreciate you listening. Like, follow, share for more. Give us comments so we know what was working. We know what you want more of. We're here for you. Rayford Palmer, Rahul Iyer, STG Divorce Law, the I Just Want This Done Divorce Podcast. Thanks. Have a great day. Thanks.